God's brought us together again this evening, we're going to be taking a look at another glimpse of Peter, only this time instead of looking through the eyeglass of God at Peter, we're going to be looking at God through the eyeglass of Peter. There it is. Going to start in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I find it helpful in my study to think about who the scriptures was written to. Mark, historians would surmise, was the first gospel that was written. And it was written to the people, to the church at Rome. And there's things that in the gospel of Mark, it comes at you. Do you you ever see those advertisements where they're flashing pictures? They they drive me insane. I can't can't stand to watch them. But the book of Mark is kind of like that. It's one powerful story after another of what God's doing. And what Mark is trying to do is to encourage the believers at Rome to stand fast and hold true. What was happening at Rome, you might have heard of this crazy emperor Nero. He was insane, absolutely insane. And it was commonly thought that he was involved in burning parts of Rome, a huge section of the city. And to take the attention off of himself, he began to blame the Christians for burning down the city. And he did all kinds of things that brought about incredible persecution. This guy would use Christians and use them as human torches in his gardens as he'd ride his chariot around. There were were terrible stories of what was happening in church in Rome. And Mark is writing to encourage them, don't give up, don't lose hope, because Jesus is who he said he was, and he is going to save us. So when we read the stories of Mark, you keep in mind that it is written to encourage people who are going through intense suffering, intense persecution, wanting to have them grounded firmly in the fact that Jesus is alive and has not forgotten them. So, with that in mind, let's look at these verses. Jesus takes his disciples out to a a section of the, the surrounding area. It's called Caesarea Philippi. Again, what we know about this area is that it was an area that had many gods that were worshipped. Caesarea Philippi, you walked out and this was this valley. And then there was this rim of hills that surrounded this entire valley. And Jesus takes his disciples out to that region where on, there's high places. And it very well could be that there was smoke rising from the altars off of those high places that were being offered to different gods. And he stands them there in the middle of it, and he says, who am I? In contrast or comparison to all these gods that are being worshipped, who am I? Well, they come back with some of the things that you cannot help. When there's somebody that's as controversial as Jesus is, there's going to be people talking. And they're going to have all kinds of opinions and ideas about who he is. Well, some say... Elijah. Remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah and the miracles that he performed? Some say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. 
Some say, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. And if you don't think that gave Herod nightmares, in the book of Mark, it's almost like a run and tally of who people thought Jesus was. Mark chapter 3, you got the, you got the religious establishment saying, huh, He's Beelzebub above himself, and by the prince of demons, he's casting out demons, and they already had him pegged. You got people that are coming. Well, don't we know? Isn't this Jesus the carpenter's son? Don't we, his mother and his sisters, they're here. Don't we know who he is? You got the man that had demonic oppression at the Gadarenes, and the people that surrounded that ter- territory that saw their pigs dive off the cliff into the... They knew who he was. He was that guy that ruined our livelihood and sent our pigs into the... And you got people that were healed. He's the one that gave me back my sight. He's the one that gave me back my legs. He's the one that healed me. There was all kinds of descriptions of who this one was. Jesus takes his disciples out and says, You've been with me a while. Look at all these gods that people serve. Who am I? The thing is... When we talk about Jesus, a lot of times we talk about in third person. I can tell you that whenever someone gets really close to Jesus, they start to tell, talk about him as my Savior, my God. But until you've crossed that bridge, well, some people say he's this. Some people say he's that. And the disciples were in that camp. They had not yet, even though they'd walked with him for all this time, they had not yet owned he was Messiah. And the next question comes, pinpoint right direct into their heart. He says, but I want to know what you think. I want to know. You've been with me through all this time. You've been around me. Who do you say that I am? And that question comes to us so point blank because until we answer that one, everything else is worthless. Who am I? And Peter comes up with this Brilliant decoration. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. The expected one. Jesus gives him one of those attaboys that, that come from heaven. You are right, Peter. You are right. Matthew records it. And on this confession, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Just... A side note, do you ever think about gates? People talk about the gates of hell as if they're some big offensive weapon. But gates are defensive. They're there in place to keep the kingdom of God from just obliterating the enemy's territory. And when we say the gates of hell can't prevail against the kingdom of God... There is no picture of these gates coming up like offensive or defensive linemen that are going to run you over. They're standing back kind of trembling in fear of what the kingdom of God is going to do to them. So what are you going to do? Be afraid of some little old gate? But this confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Peter gets a pat on the back. Yes, that's who I am. I want to just uh, say this as well. Because in contemporary culture, we have the rise of cults. Now, let me tell you one of the very first things that you can, you can figure out whether a teaching is a cult or not. It has a lot to do with 
what do they do with Jesus? Or how do they answer this question, who am I? A cult, every single one of them that I've come across, makes every attempt to try to bring Christ from his exalted position as Lord and Savior and tries to break him down and make him equal or similar to me. And, in reverse, the cult attempts to take me as a human being and exalt him to a higher place of position that's something greater than Jesus. Even world religions, oh, he's a good teacher, he's a good prophet, but he's not God. I'm going to tell you, when Peter answered the question of who am I, there was no getting around the fact that pinpoint you are the Christ. And everybody in that circle that was there that day knew that he was talking about that he was God. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, if they finally get it, don't you want somebody to know about it? Don't tell. Because Jesus knew very well what was in the hearts of people. And he knew that there was already underfoot an attempt to make him a king. They wanted to establish his throne then and now, and God's plan was something entirely different that they didn't have in mind. And that's what gets Peter in trouble in just a little bit. Jesus goes on to say in this next couple of verses in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. I need to stop there because do you understand the reference to the Son of Man? This is the first time in Mark that Jesus actually uses that name for himself. The Son of Man refers to the vision that Daniel had. And if you want, i just take you right quickly back into the book of Daniel because this is the vision and these men knew it. They grew up in Jewish school and they were expecting the Son of Man to come. They were anticipating that he was come. Listen to what the Son of Man's reference is to. It's in Daniel chapter 7 at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. He was given glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that is exactly what the disciples had in mind when they heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. They knew it. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, don't say anything? This is not yet. Brothers and sisters, it's coming. It's on the way, and it's not far, and it's not long, but it was not yet. There were things that had to be done before that. And Jesus begins to tell them, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this one whose kingdom is gone to be forever, this Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days he's going to rise again. And he spoke plainly about this, and guess who stepped in to correct him? Now, that's not the plan, Jesus. I didn't bargain for that. I left my fishing boats to follow the one who is the Christ, who is establishing a kingdom that's going to have authority 
and people are going, and I'm going to be right there with you. Don't change the rules in the middle of the game. That's what Peter's saying. Wait, Lord. You know, I like the way things were going. People are liking you. You're healing people. What we wouldn't give for Jesus right now in Haiti. Don't talk about dying. Can you just hear the devil going, what good are you if you're dead? Jesus turns to him, looked at his disciples, rebuking Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It is not easy going through hard times. But this was the way that it was going to be done. And Jesus was willing to pay the price, the entire price, and not take a shortcut in any way. Get behind me, Satan. Right after Peter receives a fantastic applaud, he gets one of these whoops. You know what that's like. I don't know how stinging that rebuke from Jesus had to be to Peter. Peter is a leader. You know, he doesn't take that very well. But you are not, you are not considering the things of God. You're only looking out for your own interests. And then Jesus goes on and he, he gives some really, really tough teachings. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You know what? I'm convinced that Jesus is making direct reference right here to the cost that John the Baptist paid for acknowledging him as Lord. He stood up to Herod when Herod had taken his brother-in-law's wife and said, that's wrong. That's wrong. And his new wife, held that against him, and looked for an opportunity to have him killed. What good does it gain a man? If he gains the whole world, that's Herod, but loses his own soul. He didn't want to kill John, but he was trapped. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I want to say it like this. This this is kind of awful in one of those little, we're going to go just slightly down this rabbit hole. This whole thing about judging. We are called to be tolerant of everything in our society. Tolerant. And let me tell you this. They will use that verse that says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, I'm to tell you here that that translated really says, don't be a bigot. Don't be prejudiced. It says nothing about making right judgment. Because if you follow up with what it says right after that, you'll know that it says to judge. Because judge not that you be not judged. What does it say next? Because in the manner that you judge, it's going to come back to you. Now listen. What I'm saying is don't be a bigot. Don't be prejudiced. But judge. Make righteous discernment 
about things that are right and about things that are wrong. People aren't going to like you, but at least they'll know where you stand. These disciples that had been following Jesus for this period of time, and they were seeing what he'd done, they just kind of had the world turned upside down. And they've had about six days to process this. And it was after that six days that Mark picks up again. And he says, six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. Now, let me tell you, when your world's turned upside down and you're depressed, one of the last things you want to do is exercise. And climbing a mountain is not on the top list of your, your agenda to do. And Jesus takes them on up there. He t- leads them up a high and he just, it marks, it was a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. That means that he was changed. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter, he still doesn't know when to keep his trap shut. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Usually, it might be a good idea not to say nothing. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. I'm going to stop there. Jesus needed the encouragement of his father at this point. And I believe that that transfiguring process brought to him the glory that he had before the creation of the world. And the disciples that were with him, Peter, James, and John, up on that mountain, do you know what happens when you catch a glimpse of the Lord's glory? You're flat on your face. There isn't nothing that can enable you to stand. We know That when he shall appear, that every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The thing is, you get to make the choice whether you want to do it voluntarily or whether you're going to be forced to, to your knees. You cannot stand in the presence of the glorified Lord. And there he was in his dazzling brilliance. And Peter pops off with God, Jesus. It's good that we're here. Let me tell you this. I've kind of found this by experience is that the closer you get to these kinds of moments, there's fewer people share that with you. You know what I mean? Down at the bottom of the hill where the rest of the disciples, on over there was the whole multitude of people. But it's just Peter, James, and John on that top of that mountain. I'll tell you, when you catch a glimpse of the glorified Lord and it changes you like this, Don't keep it to yourself. Not now. They were told to keep it to yourself because there was still work that Jesus had to do. But now you have the opportunity to broadcast it from the mountaintops. Use a megaphone. Use whatever phone you got. It's good for us to be here. Let's make a tabernacle. One for you, one for Moses, one for... But by the way, Moses and Elijah, you you realize who they represent? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus is the one that, that perfectly fulfills everything in the law and the prophets. And it was these two, these two that God somehow took. And here they come back again. You look at the stories of their ends. Elijah, in the whirlwind, he's gone. Nobody found the body of Moses. 
and in the conflict of the angels and uh, with Satan over the body, the Lord took care of it. And he sends these two champions of the faith to encourage Jesus. He knew what was ahead. That cross was no picnic. It was the worst that the human mind at that time could figure out how to dish out. I want to tell you something else. When Jesus heard his father's voice saying, this is my beloved son, verse 7, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We heard that voice come out of heaven once before. It was at Jesus' baptism. And it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, in today's vernacular, that's my boy. I'm proud of him. Jesus needed to hear the affirmation of the Father. You know what, men? We still need the affirmation of somebody. Father is great, but we need the affirmation of somebody. I just read recently a story about a, a young high school football league that had as one of the teams in its league at a detention center where the, the people that were there, they kind of made their team and they were allowed to play in the league. It was always a win in the column for whoever they were playing for. They, they never had a large school. They just fielded a team with whoever was good enough that week to be able to play on the team. Obviously, there's no parents that come to cheer their sons on and there's no cheerleaders or anything like that. But one day, one of the best schools in this whole league called up the coach of this team in the detention center and said, we'd like to provide some cheerleaders for your team. Would that be all right? Well, yeah. We'd like to provide some parents to sit on their side. Like, can you give us the names of the boys that are going to be playing? Well, well, sure. Well, they show up in their old rickety bus to the field. It was always an away game for them because nobody ever came to their... They show up, and here on the sideline, where their sideline was, there was this whole bank, the bleacher section, sitting full of parents. And they all had a name of one of the boys that was going to be playing. And the cheerleaders, they, it wasn't just the junior high leftovers. This was, they had assigned some of the, the senior high cheerleaders, and they had made up this banner that they come running through and busting through, and they were cheering their names. And during the time of the playing, these parents that were over here were cheering for the boys that were playing against their boys. And, you know, the, those boys had a record. There was no way that they won the game, but they had a record game. They did things that day that they didn't think they could do. Because somebody was cheering them on. When I heard that story, it almost made me cry because I think, you know what? We got people in the church that have longed to hear somebody cheer. They are capable of doing something far greater because they believe, somebody believes in them. The thing is, little boys grow up with parents cheering them on, but somewhere along 20 or whatever, unless you can play professional sports, it stops. Do you have any idea, men? And women, do you have any idea what you would be capable of if somebody were still cheering for you? Get on with it. The kingdom of God needs people that can go above and beyond what they think they are able. Jesus hears the voice of his father saying, This is my son. Listen to him. Let me tell you something else. Peter wants to build these three 
tabernacles or these tents, these booths. People, stop trying to stay where God was. Get on with where he's going. I listen to sometimes people's testimonies, and they talk about, well, 20 years ago, God saved me. Not to put that down. That is an important step. But they haven't moved anywhere since then. I want to stay right there. It was nice being in God's presence. And if I go out there, there's people down there that's got problems. I can promise you, you come down off a mountain of transfiguration like that, you're going to meet problems. Jesus come down off of that mountain, and what happens? There's a boy there that's throwing himself in the fire, and Jesus, it just says something about, I'm not going there, but it says he groaned in his spirit. Here he was, in the glorified presence. And now, the demonic powers of hell itself manifesting himself in the people that he loves. What's Moses do when he comes down off the mountain? He's with God. He gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down and they're singing around a golden calf. Worshipping some God. You gotta be kidding me. Elijah's on top of the mountain. Prophets of Baal just done in. And there's this fire fell. And Elijah comes And was he... There's this message from Queen Jezebel. I'm going to make you like one of them tomorrow. And off he runs. Whenever you come into this close proximity to the glory of God, you can expect that there's going to be something waiting for you that's unpleasant on the other side of it. But don't forget, who wins? Well, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. The disciples, they were kind of, off their game a little bit that day and they really didn't believe that there was any food to be had and just like there was no fish in the sea and Jesus continually provides what they need and he sends the disciples off on their their journey and immediately Jesus verse 22 immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd after he dismissed them he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves and because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come. What did Peter expect? Come, sure. Peter got down out of the boat, walked in the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly. You're the son of God. Jesus is walking on the water. He has the ability to set aside the natural laws. We call it supernatural or above the natural. Supernatural. Jesus is walking on the water as if it's 
just a thing to do. It's nothing special. He's just walking on water. The disciples are out there in that boat, and they're having trouble because the wind and the waves are making it hard to row. Jesus is just walking on the water. They're in a boat having trouble. Jesus just walking on the water. Is he upset? I don't think so. The picture that I want you to get firmly planted in your mind, it doesn't matter how hard the storm is buffeting your boat. Jesus is just walking on the water. He's not upset. And that storm didn't take him by surprise. He didn't say, oh, whoops, I shouldn't have sent them out there. There's going to be a storm. He put them out in that position because he needed them to understand that he is the one that is in control. How many of the people in that boat were fishermen? Quite a few of them. Do you think they knew anything about handling a boat in a storm? They certainly did. But they were afraid they were going to sink. And what they thought they knew how to do, they were failing. Here comes Jesus, walking on the water. When you don't recognize something, all kinds of fears come up in you. And they saw him. It made no sense. It's a ghost. There's no other way to explain it. And they were afraid. I think that's an understatement. They were terrified. It was bad enough that they thought they were going to die with the storm. Now they got supernatural coming at them, walking on the water. And Peter says, if it's you, if, do you want to go out there if you don't think it is? If it's you, tell me to come to you. I got to give Peter credit for this. At least he asked permission. How many of you decide that you're just going up and go? Well, Jesus says, come. It's one of the greatest words in our whole English vocabulary, come. It's an invitation, come. And Peter steps down. The storm hasn't stopped yet, people. That boat's still rocking and rolling. And Peter steps down out of the boat. Do you think he's going with his big toe like I do when I go in the swimming pool? He's not thinking about going down. You don't have to test the water if you're going to walk on the water. He steps down out of the boat onto the water, and he's making his way to Jesus. And for a period of time, he is doing just quite well. He's got his eyes on Jesus, but suddenly, it's what I call the reality syndrome steps in. I see waves. They're big waves. I feel the spray of the wind blowing water against my face. It's wet. This is water. I'm a man. Men don't walk on water. Boom, down he goes. And you take your eyes off of Jesus Christ, and down you go. It's when you start to calculate all the things of the natural. It doesn't add up to man walking on water. How far away was Jesus when Peter went down? How far away was Jesus when he told him to come? All we know is that when Peter started to sink, Jesus was close enough to give him a hand and pull him up. Oh, wait a minute. Did they swim back to the boat? Did Jesus go down in the water to be with Peter down in the water? Not yet. His hair's not wet. Unless it comes from the rain. But he lifts Peter back up. 
Now, they're somewhere out there. How did they get back to the boat? Jesus wasn't swimming. And I don't think Peter was swimming either. And they walk back to the boat, and they climb into the boat. Then the storm stops. Hmm. Tell you, there is no substitute for having Jesus Christ, the master of the wind and the waves in your boat. What he can speak and the peace that he can bring is amazing. Those disciples that were still in the boat. I think I got a little bit jealous. Peter, Peter said, you, you guys, you should have been there. Well, I'll tell you what, I was walking on water. Wow, you know, it was, woo. If they didn't. So, which would you have been? Like Peter? We're kind of busting on his chops a little bit. But he got to experience some things that none of the rest of them did. This trust, this childlike trust that Peter had in the master. When the master said, come, and he went. And he walked on the water. Now, there are people that will sit in church and they'll nitpick about somebody that's taking steps of faith and they'll do everything that they can to draw them and drag them down. Jealousy will do that. This jealousy of something that's a little bit more spiritual than I am. Well, you know, let's point out all their bad stuff and they're going to sink too, you know. If people really knew what they were like, stop it, church. Just stop it. You see somebody walking on the water, you start cheering them. A little bit for another step. Let's go a little bit further. You're almost there. Why did you doubt, Jesus says. And it's this doubt that creates all kinds of problems for us. Jesus is there like a dad or a mom waiting for the child to take the first steps, faith. They don't want to see them fall, but they're right there to catch them in case they do. And the next thing, did, do you ever try it? You know, your children start taking the steps, so what do you do? And then they have to take another one, and another one, and another one. And the next thing you know, they're walking. Jesus is doing that to us. He's encouraging us. He's challenging us. He's, he's, he's like, come on, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. And that's the story that I want to leave you with Peter tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for the power to walk on water to just flood this church. Give us a glimpse of who you are in a storm without being afraid of you. And when you step in our boat and you say, peace be still, we recognize that you indeed are Lord. In comparison to all the gods that people serve, you stand supreme above them. The Christ the Son of the living God. How great is your grace that you willingly humbled yourself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And that's why God has highly exalted you and given you that name that's above every name, that at your name, Lord Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you indeed are Lord And it's going to bring your father glory. He's going to be standing there just beaming with pride at his son who has done it all, completed the task. Well done. Well done. 
I can't wait, Lord, until your kingdom rolls back and the sky just splits and we see the Son of Man coming in all of his glory. And the nations are going to surrender to him. And the throne and the kingdom that he established is not going to have any end. Until that day comes, I pray that you will find us faithful, walking towards you on the water. I bless you.